How's it going? Good. Uh, it's good to see you. I would love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Everybody thirsty? Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, while you're turning there, uh, we want to take a moment in our worship gathering to recognize the season that we're entering into as, uh, as people go back to school. And uh, we've got all sorts of people who are involved in education. We have families who have chosen to homeschool. And we have families who send their children who, uh, to public school. We have families who send their children to Christian school, private school. Uh, we have uh, teachers and paras and custodians and uh, people who work in the cafeteria and busing. Like, we just have so many people, people who volunteer in schools. We have so many people involved in uh, this part of life that we just want to take a moment and recognize uh, all of you who are students going back to school and all of you who are uh, adults who are involved. And so would you do me a favor? And if you are involved in any capacity in education, would you raise your hand? Would you raise it up high so we can all kind of see who you are? And I'm going to like, I'm going to come down with you and raise my hand because I'm a school, I'm a, I'm a a schooler myself, learning how to talk good. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I want to just, so if you look around, you see those who, who are involved, and we're just going to say uh, a prayer for you. So you guys can put your hands down, but we, as a congregation, we're just going to offer uh, a prayer blessing. God, thank you uh, for every adult in this room who has said yes to your call to invest in young people, in students, God, in whatever way that looks. Um, God, I pray that you will bless them as they get ready to, to start a new uh, year. God, that you would give them energy uh, to do what you've asked them to do, that you would give them supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired love for the young people in their life. Uh, God, that every conversation they have, uh, that they would see those children, um, those students who are under their care, that they would look them in the eyes, that they would see them, they would hear them, and that those, those young people would know that they're valuable because of the words, uh, because of the presence of, of these. God, we, we know that you call us to be missionaries where we live, work, and play. And, and God, it's, um, it's significant for, for those who work in education. God, no matter yeah, what, what setting it is, you've called us to be a missionary. And, and so, God, I pray that you would um, help every person who's involved in school to to see themselves that way, to know that they are being sent by you into this place. Uh, And God, we pray for every student, from our preschoolers and uh, those who are going to venture into the big building as a kindergartner for the very first time this year. I pray that you bless them. And God, for every student all the way up to those who are in college or grad school, uh, we ask, God, that you um, would inspire us to learn, to give our very best to uh, to shape our minds, because God, you, you bless us with the gift to learn so that we can have a greater impact in your world. And so we want to give you uh, our very best as we learn. Help us to be peacemakers uh, with relationships with students, uh, with teachers. God, help us to just share the good news of Jesus through the way that we talk and through the way that we live. So we pray this prayer of blessing on our students as well. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. 
So uh, speaking of uh, back to school, uh, I always want to sing back to school, back to school. Do you know this song? Got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. Hope I don't get in a fight. Speaking of getting in a fight, um, we're talking about conflict over the next couple of weeks. Um, we're talking about relationships being at the center of everything. Uh, the, this is what Jesus says. Relationships are at the center. Um, he says it, you're called, like, the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love each other. And so Jesus, like, he ends up talking about the thing that can actually damage relationships. This, this thing that can do damage to our connection with one another. And that thing is called conflict. Um, how many of you like conflict? Because there are always a few, like in every group, that like can't get enough conflict. Uh, but that's, that's not the majority. Um, the majority of us don't like it, we're scared of it, and we don't really know what to do in conflict. Uh, but it's important for us because Jesus just names the reality that anytime two people are together and the closer their relationship is, the, the greater the likelihood that there will be conflict. There just will be conflict. It will happen in school. It will happen in our families. And it will happen in the church. And the presence of conflict does not mean things are unhealthy. Right? The, the presence of conflict is just normal. But it's how we choose to deal with it that will determine whether we're healthy or not. Does that make sense? Um, and so uh, there's uh, Kevin Wilder, who's one of our uh, teaching pastors at McPherson. He shared this, uh, this story that I thought was pretty great uh, to kind of get us rolling. Uh, it's a story from 1936. These two guys, uh, Taylor and Pope, they decide to take a 6,000-mile trip from New York to Nome, Alaska. Uh, and they're, they're going to be in a 17-foot canoe traveling these little waterways for a year together. And so they knew at the outset, they're like, we're, we're in this thing together, 6,000 miles, all this time together, there's going to be conflict. So let's agree on some rules of engagement from the outset of how we're going to manage ourselves in conflict. So here are their 10 rules of conflict, if you're taking notes. Number one, we will decide minor disputes by the flip of a coin. Uh, we will not try to settle major disputes while fatigued, or, uh, but we shall wait until after meals and after rest. Don't try to dis- solve anything when you're hangry or tired. It's not a good plan. Lots of wisdom in this. Uh, number three, we shall be tolerant of each other's viewpoints in all matters. Number four, we will not permit any annoyance to smolder, right? We're not just going to let it smolder, but we will face our differences intelligently. Uh, the day's work, number five, will be divided evenly. Number six, it shall be we in all cases and not I. Number seven, we resolve not to settle any differences with our fists. It's good to, good to outline that one. Uh, number eight, we will not kid each other excessively. So just kind of jabbing at each other. Number nine is my favorite. We shall abide by the law of cleanness. Cleanness. Because many conflicts could be avoided with just some standard um, good hygiene. And number 10, we promise faithfully to live up to these commitments. So I don't know how, how these sound to you, if like your family could adopt like 10 commandments of dealing with conflict or in the church. Uh, but the reality is conflict is a part of life. <coughs> Once again, did not hit the mute button as I coughed. Sorry about that. So Jesus uh, leads us right into the heart of it. Like right in the heart of conflict, says, I- I'm going to teach you, Jesus says, a different way to deal with it. A way that's different from any other group of people, the, the church is called to be different. 
and the way we deal with conflict is one of the ways that we're different, that we show the world what it's like when Jesus is Lord. And so here's what Jesus says. Uh, if you're there, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23-24. says this, um, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is like Jesus like the, condensing his message into this one teaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus is here. He's sitting on the mountainside. He's gone up the mountain. And his disciples, anybody who's chosen to, has come and has chosen to sit at his feet and to learn from him. And this is what we do. This is what we do with Jesus. We say, Jesus, um, you're Lord. We, we surrender to you, and we want to be your disciples. And so we want you to teach us how to live. And so one of the things that Jesus does right away at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're going to live differently in conflict. I want to teach you how to do it. And it's this, this little passage, these two verses we read, actually come in a little bit larger chunk where Jesus is talking about anger. And um, he's talking about that, like that, that fire inside of us that starts to, whew, it sparks into flame when we see that other person who has hurt us. Do you know that feeling? Like when, when somebody you know and love has been wronged, like somebody said something to them, somebody did something to them, and there's this like, ah, oh, there's this anger inside of us. Jesus is teaching how to deal with that, with that anger, and, and to be honest about it. And in the middle of that, he says, Here, so here's the deal. If you're there, you're coming to the temple, you're coming to bring your gift, your sacrifice that you've worked, you've worked for, and you want to offer it to God your very best. And you're there, and you remember, while you're placing the offering on the altar, you remember that that relationship is not in a good place. Like, you remember that that conversation did not go well. There is some funk in your relationship with this other person. And in a moment of quiet reflection, you recognize that. Jesus says, drop your gift. Lay it down. And first, the primary thing, the most important thing Jesus says is to go and to do everything you can to be reconciled with that person. To do everything you can to kindly, lovingly talk to that person to be reconciled and then come and offer your gift when the relationship is reconciled. So imagine this, you come into worship on a Sunday morning and you've been like kind of preparing your heart as you come in, and you're like, God, I, I want to give you my very best in worship today, and I want to I sing to you, and I want to recognize you're with me, and, and so God, this is, my, this is my sacrifice to you. And, uh, and you come, and we sing, and, and Carmen, or whoever's doing the announcement, says like, hey, take a minute and greet people around you. And so you take a minute, and you stand up, and you're like, oh man, you know, you're greeting people, or maybe you're one of those like super extrovert, hey, how's it going? And you're like in the back of the room talking to everybody. But like at some point, out of the corner of your eye, you see that person, and you turn, because you don't really want to greet that person. And like in, in the moment, you recognize something right. Like there's, there's a problem in our relationship. There's a funk in our relationship. What is Jesus teaching us to do? Saying, well, the most important thing in these moments is not to just go back to our seat and to pretend like there's nothing there and to just sort of whew, give it up and worship, to make our you know, sacrifices, to give our offerings. But the most important thing we can do is to seek reconciliation in that relationship, to make that the primary, um, the primary way that we worship God 
is through restored relationships. We, as disciples of Jesus, here's the deal, we value restored, reconciled relationships more than religious rituals. I say that again? That we will choose to value restored, reconciled relationships more than religious rituals. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Uh, and the Old Testament prophets, if you read the Old Testament prophets, they're awesome. I mean, just whew, fireballs. Um, but the thing that they got more animated about than anything is how God's people turned this around. They said, no, nah, as long as I'm like doing my offerings, my religious rituals, as long as I'm worshiping, it doesn't really matter how I treat other people or the kind of carnage my relational life is in because this is the thing that matters as long as I make sacrifices. And the prophets are just like, no. It, God actually cares more about your relationships than he does about your sacrifices. And so as kingdom of God people, we, we, this is a countercultural thing that we, um, we choose to trust Jesus on, that we care more about relationships than rituals. And, um, and so Jesus, he, he teaches us that the very best thing we can offer to God, the very best sacrifice we can make is a humble, loving heart that values other people and that does everything within our power to reconcile when relationships are broken. Does that make sense? Do you, do you see the primary like, place Jesus puts relationships? Nod your head, somebody, if you're, if you're with me. All right. So do you trust Jesus? Um, do you trust that Jesus actually knows us better than we know ourselves? And he understands like, the dynamics that are at play better than we do? Like, part of being a disciple is saying, Jesus, I, I don't get it. I don't necessarily always want to do this, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to do everything I can to obey, to, um, to follow you. So... In order to do that, we have to first, I think, recognize how we normally deal with conflict. Like, what do we normally do in conflict? And I could say this about myself. What do I normally do in conflict? Because I do not do this very well. This is a, this is a growing edge in me, and maybe it is in you too. So maybe you'll identify with one of these. What do we normally do in conflict? The first one is to avoid it. We just pretend like it doesn't exist, like it isn't there. Um, do you know that, you know that feeling? Like somebody does something to you and you just like, mm, I, I'm not even going to acknowledge it. I'm going to turn around. Have, have you seen the movie, um, The Princess Bride? Is that a dumb question? How many haven't seen the movie, The Princess Bride? If you haven't, okay. A couple people. Okay. So go see the movie, The Princess Bride. It's amazing. It's like my childhood um, watching this movie. I had it all memorized almost at one point. So uh, how many of you seen the movie, The Princess Bride? Okay, so there's a scene, maybe you'll remember it, where Wesley and Princess Buttercup are in the fire swamp, and they're making their way through the fire swamp, and they're being stalked by these, anybody remember what they are? R-O-U-S's, rodents of unusual size, and they see them, right? Or Wesley sees them. He knows they're there, but Buttercup doesn't. And he's trying to protect her. He's trying to, like, help her avoid these rodents of unusual size. And there's this moment, there's this moment where she asks a question about him. But, like, what about the R-U-S's? And he says this. Check out this little scene. Oh, oh, can we stop it and start volume? There you go. What about the R-U-S's? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. <laughs> How many of you have been there? Conflict? Conflict on relationship? I don't think it exists. And then all of a sudden, it's there. And it's just like, it's in your face. And you, you can't deny it anymore. Like, this is what we tend to do with conflict. We avoid it. It's a bit like, so, so somebody, somebody says something to you or about you or about somebody you love. And it's just like, what, what happens inside, Right? There's a sense of just like, 
I spit a little bit. Um, I get excited. Sorry, Colby. I'm just like getting, like, it, it hurts. And inside, like, what do we do? It just, it tears us up. But we pr- try to pretend like, ah, I'm cool. Nothing happened. It's no big deal. Like on the outside, right, you can't really tell that much is going on. But inside, there's a lot going on. It's what we do. We, we just avoid it. We just try to pretend it doesn't exist, but we know that it's there. And every time we see that person, what happens? It, it gets shaken up more. And every time we hear that person talk to somebody else, it just happens more and more. And eventually, what happens? I'm not going to do that. If I did that, we would be in conflict. And I'd be in conflict with Phil, our custodian. But eventually what happens when we avoid it is we can't anymore. Like it builds up, builds up, builds up, and it explodes. It explodes. So avoidance uh, is not what Jesus teaches, even though that's, that's something we, we typically do. Sometimes, the second thing we typically do in conflict is explode. And, and we explode. Uh, explosion takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it just like we, we've been holding it in, holding it in, holding it in. We can't anymore and just wow. And, and what happens when it explodes? Man, it makes a mess. It makes a mess. A mess of relationships. It damages. Uh, sometimes relationships explode when they just choose, I, I'm just done. And I'm not even going to be a part of a relationship anymore. Some of us are geared to explode very quickly. We talk about it as having a short fuse. Um, where we're like, that's our natural tendency is to just like, we rise to the occasion in conflict, right? We, it just, something inside of us, or we, we tend to bulldoze other people in conflict. Um, but this is not the way of Jesus either. So avoiding it, exploding, these are, these are not the way of Jesus. And the third one um, is, is maybe, I'm going to just move this out here. The third way that we normally deal with conflict is maybe the most fun and it's also the most damaging. It's the one that does the most damage, leaves the most carnage. And the third way we deal with conflict is to talk about it. But to, not to talk with the person we're in, we're in conflict with, but to talk to somebody else about it. Um, so here, here's maybe a way we can sketch this. If you want to draw it on your notes, you can. So person A and person B, they have conflict. Um, you know, person A maybe says something that doesn't quite come out right. They do something that's hurtful to person B. And they know it and they feel it. And so person B is carrying this. Ah, just carrying this weight. And so the thing that they do to deal with this is not go back and talk and just say, hey, when you said that, that, did, that didn't go well. That did not feel good to me. Uh, is they go and they choose to talk, but they talk to person C. Um, I was going to make a joke about it. This is an AV conversation. See your way out. Carmen said, don't do that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, buttercup. Um, so there's this, right? It's easiest to talk to another person. And what does this other person do? Like, they love us. And so this, this C, right? They, they, they say, ah, oh, like, you're right. This person shouldn't have done that to you. They, they were wrong to do that. And they're a friend. And so they validate you. And what happens whether we know it or not, is person C is now in conflict with person A. So the conflict isn't just between these two people anymore, but this person now feels a conflict. Have you been there? Like, you know what this is? Are we preaching yet? Um, and so um, normally, though, it doesn't stop there because person A might know. Sometimes this person doesn't even know there's a conflict. 
Like they're just oblivious to it. Um, but sometimes they do and they feel it. And they'll go and they'll talk to their own person C. C squared. And, um, and they, they start to share and what they take their side. But normally it doesn't stop there. Normally it, it just keeps spreading to more and more people. And this person, you know, kind of shares it with more and more and more people. And then pretty soon what you have is this division between these two sides. You have factions that start to grow. You have all of these people who now, they have a conflict with this person, even though they're not directly involved with it. And all of these people who have a conflict with this person, even though they're not directly involved with it. And this way of not dealing with conflict is so damaging in relationships. It is damaging to families. Families split over this stuff. Um, it's damaging to churches. It, it's like a cancer that grows in the body of Christ. It just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. Um, and I, I was talking about this in second service, or somebody came up to me afterwards, like, I said, do you know what happens when, this, when we do this? Yeah, somebody said, yeah, we start a new church. I mean, that's the ugly truth, isn't it? Like, whew, new churches begin. Um, that's not witnessing to the countercultural message of Jesus, is it? That's just replicating what we see happening around us. And so, um, one of the things that's so damaging about this is that even if these people end up reconciling, like at some point, these two people come back to one another and they say, hey, we got to work this out. And they do, and it's beautiful, and this relationship is made whole. Do you know who's not included in that reconciliation? All of those other people. Like, like, sometimes that can happen is that these two people who had the conflict, they're finally reconciled, but all of these other people who have been carrying it, they're still carrying it because they weren't a part of the reconciliation. Now, there's one other piece I want to talk about this of why it's so damaging is that if you're drawing this, you can kind of circle B and C there because when we talk to another person about a conflict we have with this person, do you know what happens to us? As I talk to you about a conflict I have over here, we actually get closer. You ever feel that? Like where it's like, it kind of becomes kind of a fun thing that we do to to talk about that person. And every time we talk about the person, our relationship grows. Like we feel closer together. There's this bond, this kinship. And so in families... It can be really easy to like, yeah, we, we call or we're texting with a, a sibling and what we text about is that other sibling and how dysfunctional they are. Um, and and it, it makes us feel good. Marriages can do this. Marriages, this can be the fuel that runs marriages is, is what we spend our time talking about is other people who, who we have issues with. Um, now here's the problem with this and this is the ugly truth of this that we just have to understand is that this is a thing called scapegoating. Scapegoating. And that thing that we feel that draws us closer together when we're talking and pointing a finger at another person, that energy between us is actually fueled by the unholy spirit. Because the unholy spirit is the spirit of accusation. There is something that makes us grow closer together there, but friends, it is actually demonic. It is, it is something that is so, so serious. It pulls us together, but it points a finger at another person. But see, the, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. It's not the way the Holy Spirit works. 
And so James in the New Testament, he, he warns us against this. By the way, this is why the, the, the writer of Proverbs, you know, Solomon, he says in, in Proverbs 18, he says the words of gossip are like juicy morsels, like tender, it's like chocolate, you know, right? It tastes good. Like when, when, when you start to talk to me about that other person, there's something inside of me that says, like, I like this, right? It's just not from God. Um, it's why James says, and he uses this like, whoo, hard, hard word, this harsh warning. He says, be aware, brothers and sisters, that our tongues are set on fire by hell. Whoa, James. He says, no, be aware. Like, the, our tongues have the power to burn down relationships. They have, they have the power to destroy, to burn bridges, to damage people, to destroy the body of Christ. Our, our tongue can be, can be animated, can be set on fire by hell. And this process right here is so damaging. And so, um, it's, it's scapegoating. And so, I, I need to admit that I've done this. Like, I, I've done this, and I'm tempted to do this. And, um, and I've needed to repent of it. Like, I was thinking about this, you know, over the last couple of weeks. This is not something, you know, just talk about from, from an objective distance. This is something that I think we are all tempted to do, and I am tempted to do. And when we realize I, I've been a part of this, we repent of it, and we say, I'm sorry. And we do everything we can to go back and to make things right. So Jesus, he, he sets a different kind of vision for the church. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians, uh, things were a mess. There were only like 50, 60 people probably in the whole church in Corinth. Um, the church was maybe like six years old. And, and what had happened were these factions had grown. Like there were their common enemies, and these factions had grown in the church of Corinth. Some people were saying, oh, I like Paul. Others were like, yeah, I like Apollos. I like, I like uh, James better. And there were these factions that had grown. And this is what Paul, as he writes to this church, here's, here's his vision. Listen to, listen to this. He says, I appeal to you, church, brothers and sisters. Like, do you hear the family language? Hey, you're not enemies. You're family. You are brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Paul, what he does is he just says, like, Jesus is Lord of the church. And if Jesus is at the center of the church, he's going to draw all different kinds of people to himself. He's going to draw very rich people, very poor people. He's going to draw people who live in, in different parts of the community, people from different backgrounds, people from different ethnicities and, and, and religious backgrounds. And he's going to draw all of them together, and it is going to be this beautiful mess. Because the only thing these people have in common is Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus is Lord, it is enough and it is the only thing that has the power to hold the church together. It's not our political identities. It's not our backgrounds. It is Jesus and our allegiance to Jesus. And Paul brings that back and he says, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus then that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is God's dream for the church. This is what the world needs of the church. This is Paul's vision for the church in Corinth. And so Jesus, he gives us some real practical advice on how not to do avoiding, how not to explode, how not to do this scapegoating and talking to others. And he he says this in Matthew 18. Real quickly, you can turn to Matthew 18 if you want to, or you can just uh, look it up later this week. Matthew 18, listen listen to these words of, of our Lord. He says, so if... Your brother or sister sins. Like if somebody in the church, somebody who, who's a part of the family of God, if they sin, 
go to that person and, and just point out their fault. Lovingly, graciously, recognizing that there's probably a plank in your own eye that you don't see and you, all you see is a speck in their eye. I mean, do all of that, but go to that person and, and point out their fault, but just do it between the two of you. That's what Jesus says. And then, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Like, you're reconciled, and the relationship is whole, and you just go forward. And, and most of the time, what's going to happen is if you do that, the relationship is going to be stronger than it was in the beginning, right? Conflict can make us grow stronger. But if they don't listen, then take one or two others along with you so that every matter can be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, so this is a bigger deal. This is like there's sin in their life and sin that's harming the church and other people. And if they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. Like bring the larger church involved. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. One quick word about pagans and tax collectors. Who is Matthew? He's a tax collector. When Matthew gives the list of the disciples earlier in the chapter... He doesn't list anybody else's former profession except his own. He says, Matthew, the tax collector. So when Matthew says, treat them as you would a tax collector, what's he saying? Treat them like you did me. Love them. And, and you may not like trust them in everything because they've, they've proven themselves to not want reconciliation, but love them. It doesn't mean treat them like a tax collector, like whew, just write them off and you know, uh, throw them to the curb, but treat them like somebody who Jesus wants to win back. So here's the thing about Matthew 18. Jesus does not give us the right to talk about another person until we have talked with that person. That, that if we're disciples of Jesus, if we're Jesus' Lord, Jesus does not give us a right to talk about another person until we have done the work of talking with that person. This is, this is the countercultural message of Jesus. Um, do you know that 50% of the conflict is your fault? until you have done the work of talking to the other person about it. Now, you might say, well, no, you don't know the conflict I'm in. It is all their fault. You don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. It is all their fault. But here's the deal. 50% of it is our responsibility, and it is our fault until we have done the work of going to the person, of sitting down, and then doing everything we can to reconcile the relationship. Jesus puts, puts it back on us. This is, this is countercultural. Um, but this is the message of Jesus. And, and you know what happens if your person see? Like, let's say somebody comes to you with, like, some, some choice morsels, right, of, of like, wanting to talk. You, you won't believe what this person did. And you say, you know what? Like, I hear that, and, and that sounds really painful. I think you need to go talk to them. And you know what? If you don't have the courage to do it, I'll actually go with you. I'll, I'll sit down with you, and, I, and I'll, I'll pray for you, and I'll go with you. That's our responsibility as person see is to help make this connection, not to spread it, not to take on the conflict, but to bring them back and to give this person courage to go back and to talk. So, um, this, is, this is the message of Jesus. Now, I just want to register this. There are people who, even though we do all of these things, who still don't want to be reconciled. We probably have people in our life who are, who are just damaging, who are hurtful, who, um, <clears throat> who we've tried uh, but it, it just won't work for this person. Um, this, is, this is not talking about it. And those people are so few and far between. Right? I mean, this is such a small percentage. Um, but if, if we've been damaged, if we've been hurt, if there's been abuse, this is, this is not what Jesus is inviting us to do. Right? There, there's a distance that needs to happen. 
for, for our own protection and um, for the other person to come to their senses. So Jesus, um, he calls us to do that, to go back, to talk to the person, to not talk about them until we've talked with them. But sometimes we just don't have the tools. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been making something in the kitchen and you just don't have the right tools. Like you're making a nice creme brulee, right? Like you do. Um, I don't even know what creme brulee is. I think it involves, does it involve fire? Is that the like thing? Maybe. Everybody else know what a creme brulee is. Okay. Um, so, but you just don't have the right tools. Or you're working on the car and you open the toolbox and, ah, oh, I don't have the tool that I need to fix that problem. That's how we feel in this sometimes. It's like we go to our conflict resolution toolbox and we just like, we open it up and it's like, I've got avoidance, I've got explosion, and I've got talk to other people. I have no tools to go back to this person because I've never seen it modeled. And so over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is just put some tools in our toolbox. And, and the whole series is built around this idea of pledge. Uh, uh, steps that we can take to do this, to actually live out the message of Jesus. And, and I'll just introduce them here, and then we'll talk more about them over the next few weeks. To pause and to pray. To pause and to pray. Um, to listen to the other person well. Not to defend, but to, to listen, to understand. To echo back what this person is saying to us. To really enter into it. To do everything we can to disarm them. Um, to recognize their point of view. To, to give the other person a chance to share their perspective because it's probably different from our own and to engage in this process until we come to a place where we can, we can go forward in a healthy way to do what it takes. So the, some of you are familiar with this process. Uh, this process was developed by a guy named Mark Olsey. Mark is a counselor, a Christian counselor in Wichita uh, and we've recommended um, dozens of, of couples to him over the years um, and he's taught this process. Uh, individuals have gone and, and talked with Mark, and, and this process has been incredibly helpful. I had somebody come up to me after second service and just said, I'm so glad we're talking about this because this has changed like our, our relationship, our marriage. It's been so good. Um, and so actually one of the cool things is Mark Olsey is going to come. It's kind of a last-minute deal. He's going to come here on the 19th and the 26th. So next uh, Sunday... And the Sunday after that, Mark has agreed to come and to be here from 9.45 to 11. And so to be during our second hour, it's in the hour that some of you are in like your adult classes. And so we're encouraging classes to actually take that time to meet with Mark. And Mark's going to go into this stuff in more detail. Um, and so if you want to, just your family, change your schedule on a Sunday, come to those times at 9.45 or as a whole Sunday school class, you can do that as well. Here three things as we land. Who is God bringing to mind? Is God bringing a person to mind who you're in conflict with? To just recognize that? To, to bring that person before God? Uh, what is God asking you to do about that? It might be to just to pray. To pray God change my heart toward this person. And, and what is the step that I will take to be faithful to God and move toward reconciliation? God, we are your people. We sit at your feet. We listen to you, Jesus. And we ask that you would teach us what it looks like to value relationships, to move into conflict without fear, um, to live out the countercultural message of the kingdom of God. Jesus, you gave your life to reconcile us to God and to each other, and then you call us to be reconcilers of others. So help us, God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, the spirit of advocacy, the spirit of love. God, teach us. God, move in our hearts. Change our hearts. God, if there's, if there's pain, if there's hurt, if there's conflict, if there are things that need to be forgiven, help us, God. God, search our hearts. Search our hearts, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name.